amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Thanks to Rothy's for supporting Made for This. Rothy's are the perfect shoe for commuting and traveling. Everyone notices them. Discover the versatile styles you can wear absolutely anywhere and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash made for this. Well, guys, he's famous here. Kurt Thompson is in the house and I am so excited about it because I always get a little free counseling, Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, gosh, man. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. You have been a huge part of my journey in the last year, and we could go a whole round about how that has changed my life and the power of being in a confessional community that many of you have heard about. If you haven't heard the episode with Jessica Honegger and Ann Voskamp from earlier this season, we are in a beautiful, amazing conglomeration of humans that are working out our issues together, and Kurt is our fearless leader. And you have taught me so much about connection and community and the power of that. And so I want to dive into things that you've taught me, beginning with, you know, let's be real. This is not a surprise. The constant storyline of Kurt Thompson in my life and in my books is that he makes me do hard things. And so he causes me Can I just Can I just say, can I just say like, I don't make anybody do things. And like, least of all, like, I do not make you do hard things. I want to say, like, I might, you know, I make suggestions and I want to say right off the bat that I, I have witnessed you do hard things. Yes. And with my uh, arms the, crossed and a scowl. But it's well, okay. I mean, I mean, it's, I, it's, 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 I just want to say, like, the hard things that you do, the hard things that you've been doing in the, that you all have been doing in the community, they're not hard because you're weak or any of that stuff. They're hard because they're hard to do. Yeah. So I, I'm just really, I'm really proud of you. I really do sign up amazed. for them. And I do, and I do want to go to those places. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It's just, yeah, it is hard. <laughs> it's hard, um, right. but we go there because, and you have done a great job of reminding me why it matters to go there. And so, why don't we just start with what is happening in our brain when we're being vulnerable with someone? Because that is the place for many people. That is the place that it feels almost impossible to break through and to actually go to these very vulnerable tender places. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to start with uh, a little unconventional response and uh talk about some work done by a guy named Jim Cohn. Cohn. He's a neuropsychologist, he's a researcher at the University of Virginia, and he does this really interesting stuff with college students um because you can get college students to do anything for food. He he takes two cohorts of college students and this is just one of the number of experiments that he's done with them. I'll just give you an example. And he'll take a, a college student and he will put them in a functional MRI scanner, which it's a brain scanner that is intentioned to look at the metabolic function of the brain. 
And when he and so he's watching this and he's watching stress levels as they show up in this fMRI scanner and how it gets measured on right or left from the front part of the brain and how that gets how that gets measured. And then he uh, will induce a physical discomfort of some kind. And it's usually some kind of electrical, mild electrical shock that is, that is tolerable, but that, but that the person can feel it and sense it and sense its discomfort. And it also registers in, you know, EEG machines, basically saying that the pain that I sense in my body is registering in my brain, like I can feel it. But the part of my brain that you're measuring with the fMRI scanner uh, is a different part of the brain than the part of my brain that is registering the pain of electrical shock. Those are two separate measurements. They're running at the same time. And so they run these scanners and they measure what is it like for a person to experience this. And then they run the experiment again, only this time, the variable is, they will bring, the, the, the student can invite anyone that they want to come along with them who is a close friend or a family member, somebody that they trust, and they're going to run the experiment, but this time the student gets to hold their hand, gets to hold wow. the hand of the other person, and they run the same measurement. They run the same experiment. And here's what's so stunning. You discover that the, uh, the student's perception of the physical discomfort, right, of the electrical shock doesn't change, but their stress levels drop precipitously. The distress that they feel in the presence of their pain reduces precipitously. Now, on the face of it, this, in some respects, we would say, well, this is what happens when we are connected to people. Our distress reduces. Connection, vulnerability, means I'm going to be open to you. That student is going to be open and hold the hand of somebody else. I'm going to be vulnerable with somebody. And because of how bodies work, we like to, you know, we can think that, well, I'm going to be vulnerable with you by telling you something that is difficult for me to say, some, some part of my story that I don't want to tell you. And I think that the vulnerability really mostly is in terms of these thoughts that are in my mind about the thing that happened to me when I was 10 or 15 or last week. And that's the thing that I'm going to take out of my head. I'm going to tell them to you and you're not going to have these things without us recognizing that the only way we even know that this feels vulnerable is because our body is sensing the whole wow. thing. Wow. That's right. And and so the very thing that I'm actually giving to you in many respects is uh, in, in this way, without you know walking across the room and having you feel my pulse or notice the chest tightening that I'm having, I'm actually transferring energy that is distressing in my body across the room to you when I say these words. The words become a way for me to transfer my distress, which is in my body. So it's body-to-body -body connection, despite the fact that it's happening in a physics standpoint, across the room, if that makes sense. But what happens if I do that? I'm not holding your hand in the same way that we are in Jim Cohn's experiment, but what happens is that I, it's like holding your hand. And you now are sharing with me, you are enabling me to reduce my distress in the presence of revealing the thing about me that is painful. And I don't experience it in the same way. It changes the nature of what happens. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to take this one step further. Here's the question that Cohn then went on to ask, which I think is a little mind-blowing. He said, you know, we do all these measurements with these students who are under duress, and then we watch them hold their hands, and, you know, their stress level drops, even in the presence of all this pain. He said, but here's a question that we haven't asked. You know, you take all these fMRI scans 
that you know we know what stress looks like because we've taken hundreds of thousands of fMRI pictures of patients' brains that look like they're normal. They're not under duress. They're just normal brains. And that's how we know when something abnormal shows up because we've got all these comparison scans of people who look normal. He said, but is it possible that what we have always to date considered to be normal, which are pictures that are taken of people by themselves, what if we took lots of pictures of everybody and they were holding the hand of somebody else? What if their pictures start to look different under normal circumstances? His point being, what if what looks normal typically actually isn't normal? What if what looks normal is the brain still under duress but separate, cut off? And we immediately go to Genesis 2.18. It's not good for the man to be alone. This notion that one of the things that our brokenness has done is that it has already raised our distress levels so that even when we're not aware of the things that are vulnerable that we want to share, we're already carrying stress around because we are disconnected. Well, what you do all the time to me is you teach me about the thing under the thing. And you don't say that. You, you say it more poetically. But what is what do you say? There's always something going on behind what we're – there's a voice, right? There's a narrative. Right. Right. And, and it's so separating we, us. Right. And we long, the, the, the reality is that uh, in, your, in your community, uh, you all long to be connected to each other far more than you're even aware of, but that your bodies know. And, and by this, I don't mean this in, some, in, in any kind of sexual way. We're not talking about that, but like our sense of longing to be connected. So when Jesus in Luke 19 talks to the Sadducees and says like, dudes, y'all worried about like, Whose wife she's gonna, whose husband she's gonna belong to, at the end after she's gone through seven brothers, like you don't get it. Like this is not what heaven's gonna be like. There will not be the giving and taking in marriage because it's gonna be, it's gonna be far beyond that. Mm. That we are gonna be this connected to each other in very embodied ways that is beyond what even our imagination is of what sexual union is like, and that's what we're longing for all the time. And so we we want that. And the impediment to that shows up much more dramatically when we encounter, oh, those parts of my story that, oh, you, so we were, you know, we, we've gathered together, the seven of us, and we're going to tell our stories. And then we get to telling our stories and we're like, dang, I got to say this. I, I'm going to name this. And we say, yeah, because what that is, my, my distress about this is uh, to, to tell my story isn't just about the vulnerability of the thing that I'm about to say. That vulnerability in part is something that I feel because my soul is pushing to make the connection. It longs to make the connection. And this one particular thing that feels very, very vulnerable is standing in the way. I interpret it as the problem. I tell the story, well, if I tell Jenny what's going on in my life, she's never going to invite me to if again. She'll, like, she, like, she'll leave the room. And then, of course, she's, she's very kind. She's, you know, she, you know, she would be like Joseph and Mary. She'll put me away quietly, right? She's <laughs> not going to be a public thing. It, it's going to be a thing where she's, you, you, you'd be very kind. But, but I know that she's going to tell all of her friends, like, whatever you do, like, don't talk to Thompson. Like, he's, like, he's, because he's got this thing. He's got several things. And this is the story that we tell. And this is the, these are the stories that evil propagates, it's not just the stories themselves. It's the story behind the story that says, if you reveal this, you're cooked. And the gospel is saying, no, it is beauty waiting to take place in your vulnerability, in this space of people who long to be seen and known just as you do. 
why, if it is so good for us, is it so hard? Uh, You know, this is going to sound really, I don't know, everything from hokey to overly simplistic. Uh, I, I, I would say, I would say two things. I would say one, we are far more terrified and ashamed than we are aware of. And we don't, like, you don't just carry, I don't just carry uh, my own shame. I carry the shame of my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents in ways that I don't even know. If you read Mark Wallen's work, It Didn't Start With You, the book that really talks about epigenetics and generational trauma, you come to discover, like, the things that God says in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Numbers, I will forgive and love, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. I will visit the sins of the parents onto the children to the second and third and fourth generation. Like this is neurobiology. This isn't just some edict that's kind of like randomly chosen by God, like out of the ether. And so consequently, we're carrying far more shame and fear than we're aware of. That's number one. Like it, 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 like we're pushing against the earth. And number two, we don't live in a neutral universe. Evil does not want us doing this. Right. And it will do everything it can to keep your community from continuing to grow in depth and breadth uh, in the ways that you have. The work that I've watched you all do in the last six months or more, um, you know, you don't, there's, we don't have, you won't have words for this. Like the, the, it's, like, it's like watching the Pieta coming, coming into view. Like the, you know Michelangelo's sculpture, like you 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 like you don't have words for this, and I will tell you that with every round of uh, with every new layer of vulnerability that you enter into with each other, uh, you know evil is going to push back. It's going to find it, 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 there will be something else that will show up for somebody that's going to say no, I can't. I've told them every, but I can't tell them this. And um, I uh, and, and so when we say you, when you ask like why is it hard, I would say it's hard because we're human and because uh, which means we've got all this generational stuff, including my own level of it that, that I'm very deeply unaware of. Uh, and we're we are working against an adversary who's not messing around. I think some people feel like what's the point? Why share? Why focus on negative things? I.e., some people being me. Before, you know, it's gotten, I, I, obviously now I know and I do it, but there was a time where that was me. I didn't know what the point was in focusing on difficult things. How does it help? If it's not something difficult happening right now, how does it help to dig up things that are difficult in the past? Well, first thing I would say, again, from a kind of a neurobiology and attachment standpoint, they're not in the past. They are in your brain. They are active. Like they are working right now. There's like, as far as the brain is concerned, there's no such thing as the past or the future. There's only the things that we think of and imagine that happened in the past or that might happen in the future, but it's all only ever taking place right now. And so that past trauma that happened when I was six and 10 and 18, my brain remembers it. Now it's doing its level best to keep me from paying attention to it right now. But it's not just because it happened in the past. And so therefore it's somehow back there. It has come with me to where I am right now. That's number one. Number two, if we believe that we were destined to, like our maker, create beauty and goodness in the world, if that's the, the, you know, the works that were created for us before the foundation of the world that he has prepared for us to do, this unfinished business that we have, that we, that, that we say is like negative stuff, we, it's like, I, I don't know that it's negative as much as it is these are, we would say these are wounds. And they represent also the parts of our hearts that long for connection, long for beauty and goodness. 
but my brain is working really hard to contain the distress that represents them because I have walked with them by myself. And the energy that I am burning containing that collection of wounds, the things that we call negative experience, that energy is then not available to me or to God to create the works that he is waiting for me to create. I can't burn that energy because it's not available to me because like I'm siphoning it off to contain all my stuff. So for those of you that don't know, Kurt wrote an incredible book called The Soul of Desire. We're doing it still in our small group. We're more than halfway through. It's so powerful. We we are so grateful for that work. And it talks a lot about this. And then I'm living it, right? We're, I'm doing a confessional community, which you recommend in the book and describe in the book. I come to places where my childhood self comes out and it is a bit of a mess. It's a lot of work for people. And I would say there's a lot of people listening that would say, I don't even know what to share. I don't even have words for what is plaguing me or what those wounds are that are still with me. What would you say to them? Well, I would say that there are a couple couple things to consider. One is, you know, one of the exercises when you get to the end of the book, uh, you know, one of the things that we did in the confessional community, like we have a, a this storytelling liturgy that we enter into. And when you uh, first ask someone, you say, like, could you tell me your story? Like most people, like they've never told their story to anybody. And then when you say, tell me, I, I'm going to give you 20 minutes to tell me your story. That kind of asks me to do it within a certain framework that requires me to focus my attention. I, I, I don't just like have the entire afternoon I can meander and wander. No, I've got to make choice. Well, what am I going to, what am I going to say? What am I going to put? Well, and then, and then they'll ask, well, wait a minute. Like, what's the, what's the rules for how I'm supposed to tell myself? Like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, I just want you to tell me your story. If we are first going to take 20 minutes and tell someone our story, and if, as a listener, I want to ask some of the questions that we ask in the book, well, where are you with that? What do you feel? What do you sense? Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. What The paying attention to my story, for many people, uh, they'll be doing that for the very first time. They know they're living in one. They know they have one. But not only have they not told it, they haven't been asked for it. You know, when, when someone says, could you please tell me your story? You know, there can be a mixture of like, uh, gosh, I'm just so grateful that you've, uh, you, you want to hear my story? Gosh, there, it just warms my heart. And then there's a the part of me is like, dang, like, I, I don't, I don't want to tell you my story. There's either it's too, there's nothing to tell. It's too, too boring. It's too bland. Or it's like, no, I'm not going to tell you. Like that's, it is safer. One, one way that I, that, that it's a concrete, helpful way to get at this is I tell people, look, you can write your autobiography. You can write your autobiography. You can handwrite your autobiography. It's a way to get at this. And the way you do it is you take 30 minutes and you write about the first decade of your life. And you don't have to, there's no, it doesn't have to be every jot and tittle. It doesn't have to be all the, but you pay attention to things that are emotionally significant to you. You don't just like write down a set of facts. You're not, these, this isn't, you, you long write it, like you handwrite, like you're writing in a journal. The first 10 years, and then you take the next 30 minutes, you, know, you go away for a day or two, and you come back and take another 30 minutes, and you write about the next 10 years, and so forth and so on throughout the decade. And one of the things that writing, handwriting, long handwriting does, is that it actually, from a brain standpoint, gives your brain the opportunity to catch up and discover and remember things that I don't always remember. And then I start to say, oh, I haven't mean, thought about that in 30 years. And oh, there was, mm. that, there was that argument that my parents had when I was 15 
And I remember like they were talking about divorce. And I, I remember just like uh, they never talked about it again, but nobody, nobody ever talked about it to me. But I, I was I was upstairs and I heard this and I remember it just put the fear of God in me that it might happen. But it, we never came back around. Like you can't be a kid who hears your parents talking about divorce and not be traumatized about that by that. Now, it doesn't end your world. You still function. You went off to school the next day. You got straight A's and you went right. off to Yale and you did fine. Or Texas A&M, pardon me. Right? <laughs> yes. Whoop. But we have all these all, hundreds of moments like this that take place right. for us that we, because we've got to just keep going. We've got to like, I, I got I to I make it. I don't pay attention to the multiple nicks and cuts and bruises that have taken place that over time create a great deal of uh, work for me to contain it all. Mm. But that I then say, well, gosh, that's not that big of a deal. I wasn't date raped. I wasn't. I didn't have this happen to me. I didn't have that happen to me. It's it's not that big. Come on, Kurt. Like my my life wasn't traumatized, which basically means you're not human. You'd say I'm not human, right? Because if you're human, evil intends to devour you, and I can guarantee you that evil has done things to traumatize you internally or externally in some way, shape, or form. And the and and one of the most powerful things that evil wants to do is to convince you that you haven't been. Yep, that's good. Because then you won't do anything about it. And then he won't have to worry about it. He won't have to worry about working on you. You'll be doing his work for him. I mean, I just, like, I, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Literally, in the last month, I said to Phyllis, my wife, I said, this is not, like, new factual information, but I feel it in my chest more deeply than I ever have. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm aware that there are things that I get anxious about. And I think I've historically just said, yeah, there are things that I can, I can name for you that are anxious, I, that make me anxious. And I'm waking up to the reality that I don't have siloed things about which I get anxious. I swim in a river of anxiety. It's what I do. Like from the time I'm a kid. I, now, most people who are not my wife, if they know me, they don't think Kurt me like that is, a, that is one like freaky, anxious dude. Right. Like, they don't think that I'm anxious. They think I'm like anything but this. And it's because I'm working so hard. I'm, I'm working so hard to swim with the current. And kind of becoming aware of that, I'm discovering how much energy I'm burning all the time. All the time. Just to not piss people off. Just to make sure that I'm getting it right. And, you know, it seems so minor. Like, the, the situations are so minor that you think, oh, that's not, that's not that big of a deal. Except, like, they're every nanosecond. Thanks to Rothy's for supporting Made for This. Yes, they have chic pointed toe flats, but they have tons of iconic head-turning designs in bright but sophisticated colors. Discover the versatile styles you can wear absolutely anywhere and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash made for this. Our Rothy's shoes work great with every outfit. You can wear them dressed down, you can wear them dressed up, plus they're insanely comfortable. As soon as you put them on the first time out of the box, you'll think, Okay, now I can wear shoes that look a little bit fancier than tennis shoes, but you're not skipping out on comfort. My favorite thing about Rothy's is that they pack really easily. So when you put them in your suitcase for a trip or you can throw them in your purse, they never lose their shape and they always look like you just pulled them out of the box for the first time. I mean, guys, come on, go look at it right now. They have a shoe called The Point and they have new seasonal colors all the time and they have The Point in this color called Soft Orchid. They're the cutest things I've ever seen in my life. And I already have the point in a bright pink, because who doesn't need bright pink? 
they go with everything. I mean, I can throw them on with a spring dress. I can put them on with some jeans and dress up with a blazer. They have so many cute styles that really can fit anyone for any lifestyle. And the fun thing about Rothy's, y'all know, you can actually throw them in the washing machine. I mean, what other shoe do you have that can look so cute, so comfortable, and you can wash them all over again? Your new favorite shoes are waiting. Discover the versatile styles you can wear absolutely anywhere and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash made for this. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash made for this for $20 off your first purchase. I want to interrupt you and say to the person that just teared up that was listening to what you said, they're they're waiting with bated breath to hear you say what to do. Like they're they're that. They're swimming in the water of anxiety and they want to pull over and they want to get to the side. What do they do? Okay, I'm tempted to do something. Let's do okay, it. Okay, what do you, uh, uh, what do you do? <laughs> I think I admit it. Mm-hmm. I say that that is true and real and happening. Yeah, even right now. And then, now. yeah, sure. And I let people in. Okay. So I'm going to pause you for a second. Uh, what are you feeling even right now? Tired. Tired. Okay. Right. I'll bet. But I want to say something. Tired is not anxious. To say that I'm tired means I can name what is really true about who I am. My anxiety emerges because I'm working so hard to pretend I'm not tired. I'm just going to keep going. But to pause, but to pause. And so I'm I'm hoping that our listeners will be hearing, even as you and I are talking, I'm hoping that they will be hearing some instruction because what's happening right now is that you and I are pausing and we're being curious about what you're experiencing right now and to be, and to pause and to come up and say, Oh, I'm swimming in this river of anxiety in this moment is for that moment allowing me to not swim in it. I'm just pausing and I'm saying I'm really tired as I sit here with my arms crossed, trying to contain everything else that I might be doing. My arms aren't crossed. Yeah, 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 but I, yeah, but I, or put my hands under my legs. It's just, it's easier to do it that way, right? It's just, I just put my hands under my legs. What am I supposed to do with my hands? This this sense, this sense that if I pause and say, I'm really tired, I want to say to you, I really get it. And I would hope, and I like it, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm truthful. And I would hope that when you hear me say that, that you would feel felt. Mm-hmm. And that you would have the sense that like, I see you. And I understand because there are things that I know, things that you've named. And if I... Oh my gosh, I, I, I don't, I've ne- I'm, I'm the youngest brother. I've not gotten to be the older brother. But if I were, if I was the oldest brother, I would like want to like wrap you up in my arms and just, I want you to just rest. And that's the practice that we need. It's important for us to have regular contact with those who can hear us say, I'm going to pause long enough to look at you and say, what is it that I feel? I feel tired. And the more frequently I'm doing that, the more I'm actually paying attention to my brain. Anxiety, this river of anxiety in which I swim, in and of itself is not a problem. It is my brain trying to get my attention. It is my brain saying, if you pause long enough, Kurt, you'll see that you also are tired. Mm. 
and you have longing and you're sad. All those things are true all the time. Because I carry stuff that isn't just mine. I carry stuff that belongs to my parents and so forth. And and if we name, these are the things that I'm tired and I'm sad. I might be angry too, probably, to others. Then I can begin to process what's really true about my soul. That what is most true about me is not that I'm anxious. That my anxiety is a signal that's trying to get my attention about the things that are even more real. Mm, that's good. But when I say to you, when you say to me that you're, that you're tired, and if you had to say it every day for the next 30 days in a row, I would say, you can't make me leave the room. I don't care how many times you have to tell me that you're tired. I'm not going to grow tired of hearing you say that you're tired. Mm. I am, I'm, not, I'm not leaving the room. Over time, we become more comfortably able to allow ourselves in an embodied way to we allow ourselves to give ourselves to others mm-hmm. the parts of us that we hate the most the parts of us that we that are the most wounding not unlike jim cone's patients in his experiments they hold the hand of the other and the connection changes the person's experience of their own story because if i'm because if if i if you're holding my hand when i'm telling you that i'm tired and sad and angry I picture you crawling into the room with me where that's taking place and it necessarily changes categorically my own brain and my own story that I tell. I tell, I'm not alone with my story. This is what I watched you the, 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 in your group. This is what I watched you do. You're not letting yeah. anybody be alone with your story. No, it's changed my life. I'm scared though for the people listening right now that feel like they don't have anyone to be in the room with them. You know, there was a book that came out. <laughs> Am I not mistaken about this? Yes, and that's the whole point. But there's people that even today are texting me and saying, I just don't know if it will work. I just don't know if I will find them. And Right. So I'm going to pause you and I would say if they were if if you were to say to me, Kurt, I know you've talked about this, but I just don't know if it'll work. I would pause you and I would say, what would I say? I've I would say, what are you? Are you <laughs> He's using my own words against me over and over. <laughs> if it, I would say, what are you feeling? And what we we say, it's I just fear, don't know if yeah. it'll work. Right. But what we're really saying is, I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah. And to which I would say, to which I would say, like, I get it. Yeah. I'm not going to say, oh, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not going to say, oh, that's silly. I'm not going to say, oh, no, you'll be fine. No. Because that's not going to be helpful for you. Right. What's going to be helpful is to say, like, being afraid makes sense. Right. Because we don't have many we don't have much practice doing this. Right. And so we would say, "Yep. This is hard. This is frightening. You're right." And here's here's part of the good news. I mm. really believe that Jesus if he were in the room and we were to say to him, "This feels really hard to do. Why why have you set this up for for us to like the body of you why can't you just come, right? This is Jesus saying to the disciples, if I don't leave, the paraclete won't come, which is kind of weird, right? Like, I think like God could do whatever he pleases. Like, why can't Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father all show up on earth at the same time? Like, what's up? He says, if I don't go, he won't come. And I imagine, oh, if Jesus sticks around, I will forever be going to him to work out my problems with my wife. I'll be so like, hey, could you please tell her? Could you please tell my friend? Could you please tell my enemy? 
I'm not going to have to do that work. I'm going to ask him to do that work for me. And he's saying, oh, no, no, no. I want you to grow up to be my sisters and brothers. Wow. I want you to do the work in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's how, that's why we're going to do this. Mm. That's why I'm not just reconciling y'all to God. I'm reconciling y'all to each other because it's all part of the deal. You don't get one without the other. Mm. And in that way, the naming of our vulnerabilities in these confessional communities, naming these things, give us the opportunity to continue to create beauty and goodness in the world. So that when I am vulnerable with you and it changes my neural networks, when you say, I'm afraid to do this, Jesus would say to us, if he were in the room, I think he would say, wow. It's so good for someone to feel exactly what it's like for me to be me. Who knows how many people Jesus tried to get to follow him before Peter, James, and John finally said yes. Mm. We know that there were others that he asked to follow him, the rich young ruler. There were others. Oh, I got to go bury my dad. I got to go check out the land. There are others who said, like, no. How do I know that this is going to work? They could say. How do, how do, like, what they're really saying is like, no, I'm afraid. Jesus has like he he's been on the receiving end of people who have said like no I'm I'm too afraid. And he would and you can imagine he's like no come on come on come with me I'm afraid. He knows what it's like to ask people for this and to have them say no. And so it's not just that he knows what we feel. It's that he's inviting us to know what he feels. And so I love the title of your book because p- people you know, when, when, when I, we talk about this, these confessional communities, they'll say, like, how can, I, how can I find a confessional community? How can I find that? As if the confessional community is out there and it's going to, like, already be ready-made for me. And I say to them, uh, it is much more likely that you're going to have to create your people. And so the finding of them is really about the creating of it. Mm-hmm. And so for many of us, I would say, who are listening, it's like, well, how, 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 Ed, how do I find it? And then how do I make it work? I say, like, uh, Everything that you need, you already have, including your fear that I, we would say your fear is your longing talking. Your fear is your vulnerability talking. And that is not a, a critique or a condemnation. It is the part like you are human. That's why are you afraid? Because you have a pulse because you're fragile. Cause like we are, we're vulnerable. Like we're like, we're all, we're going to die. Nobody gets out alive. And Jesus is saying, come be like me. Come be like me. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be doing this with you. And so, tactically, what does this mean? I would say, imagine one person. Can you think of one person that you could say, like, I would, I would like to take the risk of telling one person my 20 minute story. Yeah. I'm gonna do just one person, and I'm gonna, and then I want them to do that, and then I want to ask, I want to give them the opportunity after I tell them my story. I want to give them the opportunity to. You know, there's that little liturgy that we talk about in the book a bit about like, how do we follow this and how do we name what we feel and what are they curious about? Well, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that in order for us to continue to do the ongoing growth work as we've, as we've described, you know, you start with your 20 minutes, but that's just like stage one of the rocket because we're really talking about telling the whole story until we're dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our group is about decided we're never, we're never stopping meeting what we're going to do it till we're dead. And you've said that about other groups. When you find this, it's hard to let go of it. You don't want to let go of it. I just, I, I think about the person that's listening, that's craving this. And to some degree you're saying, go create it. What does it look like to be a safe person? There's some, a part in the book that I talk about where I quote you 
talking about being seen, soothed, safe, secure. Right. What does that look like to be that kind of person so that other people can share with us? It's a great question. I think there are uh, probably, you know, a handful of things that are concrete that we could say. Number one, uh, a person who, and and, and, and I, and I, I'm, I kind of hedge my bets on the, the use of the word safe because it's, it's a word that we're kind of misusing in many respects culturally these days. But let's just talk about what does it mean to be a person who will be comfortable and confident in the presence of others as a listener? Uh, number one, I think it's a person who is aware that the most uh, helpful thing that I bring to this conversation is my presence and my empathic listening. That's the most powerful thing that I bring, not my ready-made set of solutions for your problems. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be empathic and I'm going to be present. I'm going to pay attention to not just your words, but I'm going to pay attention to what I notice about how you're telling me anything that you're telling me. That's number mm-hmm. one. Number two, an important part of that is that I'm a person who's actually working at, I might not be, I'm not perfectly aware of, I may not be perfectly aware of it, but I'm working at being aware of what I feel when I hear your story. When I want to move to fix your story, when I want to move to give you solutions, it's usually because what I'm hearing from you is creating a discomfort within me that I need to resolve. And I'm going to give you a solution, not just primarily to help you fix your problem, but in order for, if your problem is fixed, then I can feel better. And that's really what, because life's really all about us. I mean, as it turns out, it really is the case neurobiologically. And so as much as I want to be helpful for you, I'm never helpful for you without it having the capacity to serve, to, to reduce my distress as well. But as it turns out, we aren't, we are very unaware of the power of our presence and attunement to others, that that in and of itself can be anxiety relieving to people. Mm. And so I'm going to be attuned to you. That's number one, to be comfortable and confident listener. Number two, I'm going to be attuned to myself. Number three, I'm going to be a person that you can guarantee, you can count on that when you talk to me, this conversation is between you and me. I'm not talking to my husband. I'm not talking to my friends. I'm not talking to other friends that we share in common. You can be confident that what's that what happens here in this conversation is going to remain in this conversation. With the hundred thousand other people listening to me cry, it's okay. This time, <laughs> you're killing me. It's, it's okay. I said I was tired today. I didn't say all my baggage. <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. All right. Okay. So you bring up another thing. You you because you you bring you bring up another thing. It's important for us to know that, uh, you know, I might want to tell, like, I, I might, and I, and I feel compelled, and I would want to tell you uh, my story, but there might be parts of my story that I'm not ready to tell you yet. And so I can tell you that I'm tired, but I might not be ready to tell you what's behind that and what's behind that yet. But recognize that as a, as a safe listener, I'm not a person who requires you to tell me everything. Wow, that's powerful. I don't need you to tell me everything. I want you to tell me what you are able and want to tell me in the 45 minutes or 90 minutes that we have. Wow. Because we know that if we're going to have a conversation that's real, then that's a conversation that's going to take place over a period of many, many days, weeks, months, years. And it's not just a matter of like, well, can you tell me everything there is to tell me in this 90 minutes? It's a matter of, can we begin to practice telling our story truly? 
recognizing that there will always be more to say. And I think then, uh, you know, one of the other things is it's really helpful for us to be curious in asking five questions that we all know and that are important. We have in, in the English language, we have five interrogatories that acquire information. Who, what, where, when, how. Those are the five English interrogatory questions we have. We have a sixth that as a listener, I invite people to stay away from. And that's the question, why? I don't need to know all the whys about what happened to you. I don't want to know what's wrong with you. I want to know what happened to you. Why is often a question that we use interchangeably with like, well, what was your, why, well, what was your problem? Why did you like, it's not just like, I'm not just looking for the, how did that happen? That's a how question. Why has all kinds of other implications to it that often can be unhelpful in this. And so I want to ask those five questions, who, what, where, when, how, because I really want to hear about the events of your life in the context of the emotional nature of those events recognizing that as you hear me, as you sense me sensing you, as you sense me hearing you, uh, we recognize that as a listener, as a listener, I am helping you tell your story differently. I become part of the storytelling that is new and different. I think about when when Jesus, you know, the, the, the woman who at the hands of many physicians suffered because of her hemorrhaging, and she knows that he's coming. And she decides, I'm going to like get on with his cat. And she kind of like ducks and covers, touches the hem of his garment because that's all that she wants to do. And she figures like, this, this is all my healing needs. Like, this is the point. The point is to stop my hemorrhaging because that's my problem. And Jesus could have just kept going. But no, there was far more to her healing that was required. Who touched me? Who touched me? He asks a question getting at things that she didn't even know she needed because there was so much to her healing that was required that wasn't just about her hemorrhaging. It was about the social shame of all that and all the things that were collective about that. But Jesus was a person who knew when to ask and when to pause and not ask. And so that's something else about somebody who's, who is comfortable and confident in our presence in, in you know, being a safe listener. It's a person who can ask those five interrogatories they will continue to be curious about that without requiring us to tell them everything all at once, but also being at the ready to say, I'd love to hear you say more about that when you're ready. Kurt, thank you. Thank you for how you've shaped my view on this, all of our view. We live differently because of your life. Well, thanks be to God. Well, guys, it's season 10 of the Made for This podcast, and you will not want to miss a single episode. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review so that other people can find the show too. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Made for This podcast.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.